Hello everybody, welcome to the LA Kings Corner Podcast. This is officially episode 6 since we've been on Apple and Spotify. We here at LA Kings Corner hope you all had a very merry, cheerful, joyful holiday season. But in this episode, we discussed the games leading up to the new year. We were at home against San Jose, we went on the road to face Vegas, then we came back home to play the Edmonton Oilers, two of our direct competitors right there, and we did take two L's. Also in this episode, we discussed the offensive zone structure as it stands right now. Is it boring? Was Brendan Gallagher right? What is it missing? Is it lacking a certain dynamism back there? Also in this episode, we discuss Victor Arvidsson's return to the lineup in mid-February, and we also discuss a little bit about the Winter Classic, being that it's the spectacle that it is. But anyhow, I hope you enjoy this episode of LA King's Corner, Episode 6. Happy New Year, everybody. Hey, Kings fans. Welcome back to another episode of LA Kings Corner, the podcast for the fans, by the fans. This is Ryan Marvin joining you live from the Norse Ranch in Newbury Park, California. It is December 31st, 2023, last day of the new year. we got Josh Norse here. We had a great time at the uh, Kings Edmonton game. And, you know, it's always it's always wanting to start this off strong and, and really have an impact for you guys right out the gate. Um, there's a story that we wanted to bring to fruition because a lot of times we're always focused on the outcome and not the process. And I think Josh has a great story to reflect upon that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. So there, a donkey falls in the ditch. Now this is a myth, right? Of course, a donkey, but for enough, for lack of a, or for entertainment's sake, we'll call him a jackass because I'm a jackass who can fall into a ditch every now and then. But anyway, it's a story about the jackass who fell into the ditch. Okay, one day, there's a man standing by the edge of said ditch. And another man sees him and gets curious. So he walks down to see the man. And the guy goes, hey, what are you doing? And the guy goes, well, I'm trying to figure out how this jackass got into the ditch. And the guy that came down to see him goes, well, what are you doing? No, we got to get him out. So he grabs the guy and they and they help get the jackass out of the ditch. All right, all as well as ends well, right? Well, no, the next day, there's another guy standing by the edge of a ditch. And the same jackass is in the ditch. Another guy gets curious, comes down. And you know how you pretty much know how this plays out. He goes, what are you doing? I'm trying to figure out how this jackass got in the ditch. No, we've got to get him out. So they up and they get him out of the ditch, right? End of story. What's the moral of the story? Well, they're both right. All those people in the story are all right because you have to figure out how to get the jackass out of the ditch. Of course, or else the jackass is going to continue to go back into the ditch. But you got to get the jackass out of the ditch regardless. So as a as I'm reminded of this story, and I'm just trying to figure out how much detail I want to uh, I'm willing to uh, divulge here. Uh, you know, kind of just came out of one of one of the worst ditch falls I could ever have fallen into. And by the grace of God, I was um, able to get out. And I'm reminded of a quote, you know, everybody likes to throw this quote around. They say, um, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you fall down. It's about how many times you get up. Yeah. You mean you got to get up, but listen, that quote is only a half truth as far as I can tell, because you only have X amount of times to be able to actually get out of the ditch or get up at some point the, the clock hits zero and at some point the hourglass runs out so here look you want to relate it to sports uh floyd mayweather in my estimation the greatest boxer of all time what makes him the greatest boxer of all time is i know a lot of people don't like him because he's 
He doesn't go for the knockout always. It is, isn't the most entertaining fighter. But guess what? The freaking guy never falls in the ditch. He never gets hit. He's mastered the game that he's playing, Marv. He's mastered it. And the art, the art of that game is don't fall in the ditch and you stay above ground. So I just thought that was an interesting story. I can relate it to my life. And uh, I, I guess what I'm saying is here, here's another little detail that I'm willing to divulge. Came out of the ditch and I just, I thought to myself, I don't have many ditch falls left, you know? So it's time to stay out of the ditch. And that's the art of the game is to stay out. So. Yeah. And I think the, the part that you alluded to with that previous story is that we ultimately need to figure out why we're getting stuck in the ditch, right? Is there something that's causing us to go, to go there time and time again? And yeah, you definitely want to continue to get yourself back up. But you also want to figure out why you're making those mistakes. And I think sometimes that's the hardest part, right, is self-reflection and being able to say, you know, where am I flawed and, and what can I do right now? What's one thing I can do right now that's going to have a positive impact in my life? What's that one thing? You know what I mean? For me, this last week and a half being down here, I'm not sure if you can hear the pool going behind me. But it's been hopping in the hopping in the cold pool every morning, and it's hard to do. And um, I tell you what, though, it's been invigorating. It, it's it's a it's a difficult thing, and I've checked that off the list every single day. And even though you know there's been a lot of colds going around, you know I don't know if this is anecdotal evidence or if it truly does or has helped my immune system, but I'm fine. You know what I mean? I'm doing great. And so finding that one thing that is non-negotiable, right? And I have to do this every day in order to have my best day. And, you know, from an LA Kings corner perspective and, and the Kings, you know, what's the one thing that the Kings have to do to have their best game? One thing. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, right off the rip. Just because we're off the heels of the Edmonton game, and we'll get to this, right? But what we saw out of the Edmonton game is basically exactly what we saw at the end of the playoffs the year before. And I think what the Kings have to do, the one thing they can do to have their best game is to not is to not take the foot off the gas, so to speak, and to not play afraid because they they have to there has to be some, I mean, like they've proven it to themselves that they can play with the best. So go out there and play with the best and to to retreat into this, this I want to call it an old-style mentality of the Kings where we're not sure if we can, that's going to do them in. And I think it did them in last night. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I, not to put you on the spot there, I just I was kind of going off on that tangent and thought, what's the one thing, you know what I mean? You always think about one thing that you need to do to have a successful game. And I think, you know, from the Kings' perspective, um, it's that penalty kill. You know, when their penalty kill is at its best and then they can play more aggressively, you can play more aggressively. And I think there was a whole lot of fear in that Edmonton game to put them on the power play because, you know, we have like PTSD, so to speak, against playing Edmonton, you know, in the playoffs last year. Here we are, December 31st. That was the first game that we played at Edmonton this season. And, um, you know, and it was like there was no there was no memory loss from playing them in the postseason. We're a much better power play or penalty kill team, but I didn't get that sense of confidence that we were much better 
than we were last year in that in that particular situation. But we're going to get to that. We're going to talk about some of these games. Uh, we've got a few topics to talk about. San Jose, uh, Vegas, Edmonton. Those were all our recent games uh, upcoming to end 2023. Um, some things that we're, we're going to tap on too is, uh, you know, the Spence, Dursey, Clark, right-handed defenseman situation. Um, we'll talk about the offensive zone structure and movement and how how could we see it. Uh, some modifications and changes in that. And where is our offense coming from? Um, and then also we'll touch on Victor Arvidsson, the story recently uh, posted about his potential return. And then, of course, as we start 2024, you know, the Kings are not partaking in the Winter Classic, but we should talk about the Winter Classic because it is uh, it's a spectacle for the game of hockey, right? It's a celebration for the game of hockey. And we've all spent time in the Pacific Northwest, you know, and uh, it's pretty cool to see that happening as the game continues to grow in new areas. So let's jump right into those games. Um, I had a chance to see the San Jose Sharks game uh, live. It was great. Had a chance to post some content for our social media feeds and um, and even had some Sharks fans down there with us in the corner uh, watching that game. And they're, and they're in a tough spot, right? San Jose is in a tough spot, Josh. They're, they're in a full rebuild. They don't have a lot. You know, they've got a couple of players, coachers out, Hurdle's kind of on his own. Um, Goaltending is a little bit questionable. Defense is questionable. But the, you know, coming off of the Christmas break, this was a perfect first game to kind of get back in, get the get the feet going a little bit in game speed. Um, but San Jose kind of came out and dictated the the pace of that game. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I was, you know, I was doing the watch along for that game uh twitch.tv slash la king's corner and twitter.com slash la king's corner mostly rumble too but um you know i was saying before this before the game began at first i was saying oh this is going to be an easy game it's going to be a cakewalk it's nice to come off a christmas break and have san jose but as soon as i said that i went you know what all the guys are at home with their families they're home with their kids they're having a nice time and then now they get to now they're playing a game where they think it's a cakewalk is this going to be a trap game? All right. So I was wondering that. And then we came out with the start actually on the stream, you know, I was hoping, here's what I was hoping for. Get up five nil and let's cut it and let's go home early. Cause I don't want to spend my time of three to three hours on a stream against San Jose and the team who's in a, the market for Celebrini. Well, San Jose came out and took it to us and took a one nil lead. And they pretty much dominated that first period. And then they dominated for the, the first, I want to say five, six minutes of the second period too. So um, player of the game, in the end, it could be anybody. But at David Riddick, I think it could have been 3-0. It could have been 3-0 if it wasn't for him. So what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I agree, man. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think the biggest, uh, the biggest point that we saw in that game was truthfully David Riddick, what he brought to the game. I loved, I loved watching him and his communication with our, with our players. Um, obviously San Jose started, they, there was a turnover by Fiala. They go down and score on a breakaway, but he truly did, you know, hold us in that game. And, uh, he made some great saves, but he was communicating with this defenseman. They were talking about coverages. They were talking about situations. Guys were wrapping him on the pads. He was, you know, he was bumping guts guys on the shin pads. You know what I mean? Those sorts of things in my mind, those are great, um, great signs of good communication from a goaltending and also a building of uh, of chemistry, right? 
they're like he's going out of his way to communicate with those guys to make sure things are good and they were going out of their way to make sure things were good with, with him too and their coverages and whatnot so i really like that his performance was great and i think once the kings uh fiala he got benched after he turned that puck over which i was a little bit like whoa that's he's your one of your leading scorers and you're gonna turn him, you know you're gonna put him down for making a mistake and turning a puck over at the blue line you know i just yeah it's it, it, not my th- but hey he 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 answered the bell so to speak so hey that was a it worked right from a coaching perspective to get your player fired up like hey we can't have this sort of thing well he seems to do that a lot i remember when he when he um there was talk about there was a big talk about Kevin Fiala and him being one of the, he was quickly becoming one of the scapegoats because he takes those offensive zone penalties and he create he makes those offensive zone turnovers and I was kind of the advocate for well listen he's one of the guys you just got to keep throwing over the boards because he's going to atone for his mistake eventually and he seems to always do that but with as far as the benching goes man it just happens so often. So I think Todd was in a spot. I kind of agree with you, Marv, still. He's still a guy that I just continue to throw over. But I think Todd was in a difficult spot where he goes, what am I going to do with this guy? This fucking guy keeps keeps doing the same thing over and over again. Some people call it insanity. Yeah, banging your head against the wall, doing the same thing over and over and over again. And, you know, he almost made a turnover last night I watched. They ended up – he ended up taking a penalty uh, in the defensive zone. And uh, I don't think they scored on that one. But um, anyways, Fiala and his penalty taking, we uh, we joked with the guy sitting next to us in King's Corner last night. You know, he must have something in his contract. He's allowed to take certain number of penalties or, or something. Or maybe he's trying to get penalties to bump up his fantasy stock. Who knows? Yeah, man. You know what? It's, it's all just – I can't say it's all – one thing I'll say about his penalties, if there's a silver lining in penalty taking – it's not lazy penalties, I don't think. No. As far as I can tell, it's it's hard-working penalties. It's just reckless penalties. I, yeah, I mean, he's trying to make stuff happen in the offensive zone. He's trying to make stuff happen in the offensive zone. And, um, and I think that that's where it comes back to, you know, what's the one thing that you're doing really well when you're playing your best is, is killing penalties because it really frees you up to play super aggressively and to press to press and push the line to challenge those refs to, to make the call because you know, you're going to be able to kill the penalty. It doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? Um, but you know, going, going in, uh, Kempe had a great, great game. PLD gets on the board against San Jose. Woohoo! PLD gets on the board against San Jose. Um, I, you know, that quick goal again from, from Lewis PLD gets another one there in the second and then Kempe gets two in the third. Um, so I think Kempe was, it's nice to see Kempe get on the board. I love it when he's got multi-goal games and they go into Vegas the next night. And I thought it was interesting. Uh, you know, we come off of San Jose and Vegas comes off of getting shellacked against Anaheim. And we had this conversation earlier, how much of an impact does your schedule and your recent record have on how you come out in these games against the top teams in your division? It's such an interesting question and such an interesting point. First, let's put a stamp on the San Jose game. Here's my my official stamp on the San Jose game. In the end, you dog walk the Sharks. Who gives a shit, right? So, but anyway, so the question, it's so interesting how the season flows. Because you think, okay, there's a game on the schedule. You might circle this one. 
or you might circle that one, whatever, and you might, you know, pity pat some other some other game. But as it turns out, right, it, Vegas gets shellacked against Anaheim, and then we had we came off the Sharks, so a sort of easy game, right, where they and they got piss pumped. So does that? I would like to think that these guys are all professionals and they take it game by game, and it's a game. I just don't think when you have that many guys in the room that human nature doesn't prevail in the end. I mean, that's my theory on it. So we have a Vegas team who I would think is pretty upset on a four game loser, just got beat by the ducks who aren't very good. So they're going to come out extra hard where, especially against us. And then we're coming off San Jose where it was sort of a walk in the park in the end. So doesn't that, is it obvious, but the Kings in Vegas start, is it obvious that that was going to happen? I, I think so. Because I think you could call that from a mile away. And they did. They did. They took it to us in that first period. They did. And then when the Kings finally were able to get on the board, um, I thought the biggest thing was Vegas answered right back. You know what I mean? The Kings, the Kings score to make it 2-1, and Vegas comes right up right back and starts humming, and boom, bangs another one home to to get that two goal lead back. I mean, you know, that whole state, the whole saying about a two goal lead is the worst lead in hockey, right? Because as soon as you get one, as soon as you, as soon as you get one, you're only within one goal. And if you get that next goal now, holy shit, we just gave up a two goal lead. Now the other team's on their heels, which happened to us in Edmonton. But the key was for Vegas was that they gave up one and they turned it somehow. They put, they pushed the gas pedal back on again and came back and got it, you know, got that two goal lead back, which then completely deflates the Kings momentum that they had started to generate. We talked about it on the way to the game last night, a little bit, Josh, how the game has, we've seen so many more ebbs and flows to the game. Um, what, you know, I think you do such a great job of describing that. Can you describe that for folks listening, what you've been seeing with, the ebbs and flows of, of games. It just to me, how it, how a game comes across these days. And I think I noticed it specifically when I'm watching Colorado games, because now this is an egregious example because Colorado seems to be a constant wave. It's one shift, bang, next shift, bang, cycle shift, another one, another one, another one. You're now you're defending for four five, six shifts in a row. Um, evenly matched teams. What it seems to me is you get that wave but then the other team gets an equal wave. I get three, four, five shifts in a row in the offensive zone. And so that's what it looks like to me, especially with these, with these high cycling teams like Edmonton, like Colorado, you're going to get wave after wave of attack. And I think what we were trying to figure out, Marv, was how to, how does the team actually break that? How does the team actually break that wave and then enter into a wave of their own? Uh, for, you know, just off the top of my head, a quick idea a crisp breakout pass. The most important play in hockey is the winger making that play on the wall, but it could be if you're defending a wave, getting a cheap whistle, uh, catching them on a, maybe possibly in a bad change, but it does seem like, yeah, the game is okay. They're in a wave now. Now we have to, uh, we're going to have to ride this out. Like, no, like for lack of a better word, we're gonna have to ride this wave out until we can get a whistle or something like that, because it seems like once teams get rolling, it's, it's tough to stop because they're all good. You know, all those players are good. Yeah, it's a good – I think it's such a good point, man. Um, the teams like the Edmontons, the the Vegas, and the Kings too. I mean, let's let's face it. Our Kings are one of the top teams in the league. And when they get humming, 
on somebody with zone time and pressure, it is just wave after wave after wave with our with our top you know our top four lines. I mean, they can come at you in waves, and it really is such a nice position to be in. But in terms of breaking that waves, right? Like if you're a surfer and you're trying to get out, you know, past that that break, how do you break that? It's you know a lot of times it comes with the goaltender killing it, um, you know, killing it to get a whistle or you know, uh, even an ice sometimes when your guys are tired, mm-hmm. um, those, those situations, getting it in and getting a puck on their particular, on their net in particular to get a stoppage, because we also talked about this. I think one of the most underrated aspects of the game and the why, why the Kings and Rob Blake built such center depth is because it's Im- the importance of the dot, the importance of faceoffs, the importance of being able to take possession off of the draw, because you can truly change the game by being able to execute face-off plays. It's almost, if, you, if you're able to execute offensive zone face-off plays well, it's almost like an immediate scoring chance opportunity, right? And we saw that in Edmonton's power play goal against us last night. One face-off back up to the point. Bouchard down over, down to McDavid. Boom, walks the line, puts it pop, top dog. I think same thing happened with our four-on-four goal, four four goal against. So face-offs become a huge, a huge way of breaking those waves. Um, and, and and I think that's one of the nice things that I've seen about Cam Talbot and Dave Riddich too, and even Copley when he's on his game, is those guys do have the ability to uh, to suck up pucks, you mm-hmm. know what I mean, to, to know the ebbs and flows of that game and when it's good to keep the puck alive and when it's good, hey, we need to take a draw here sort of thing. That's a great point. Yeah, they, they, they're very – there's a, I know people don't like this sometimes, but there's a, there's a veteran presence about our attendees. Um, but yeah, the, the importance on the dot and my, one of my biggest pet peeves, this is kind of away from your point, although somewhat similar is one of my biggest pet peeves is losing the original face off, off of, off a of power play. You get that end zone face off and you lose it. And it's just, it, I feel like it kills a power play sometimes. Now you got to go retreat. Now you got to enter again. Who knows if you're going to enter again? It has to be a clean entry. That, you know, so now you're just you're kind of up against time at that point. Whereas if you can get possession right off the hop, it's as you said, it's going to be an instant scoring chance. But yeah, it's important all over the ice in any situation, really. Especially yeah. when, especially when you're in a wave and you want to continue it. If we're talking about breaking it, the other team want, has to win that draw, you know, in order to break it. If we win it, and then the wave just continues. So. We talked a little bit about that schedule um, and, and the influence there. So the Kings have lost the last two games to end the calendar year. Does this raise any red flags for you? So we end we end December 2023. We're sitting in a good position overall with the start of the season, but you you end the year playing against probably your two most most difficult rivals in Vegas and Edmonton and you lose both of those games. Does that raise any red flags for you as we move into 2024? Yeah. Yeah, it does. But throw the San Jose game in there too, because the, the start and then the, the start of the second period in that San Jose game was the start of the alarm bells. I would say, because we can't find a way to get a good start against that team. It carries over into the Vegas game where we don't get a good start. And then, okay, well now we'll get some jump. But then we end up choking away that jump anyway. Now, 
I understand people who make the argument that we lost in a shoot. Yeah, I agree with you, by the way. It was for all intents and purposes, it was it was a tie hockey game. But in the end, we lost both games to direct competitors and we had a bad start against San Jose. So I think that there are there's some there's just slight alarm bells. That's all. I'm not pressing the red panic button or anything, not even close to that. But there's some there are some alarm bells that are going off that would say, okay. The uh, as we talk about a lot, Marv, when Edmonton came into town, it's McDavid and Drysaddle. The top talent won out against ours again, and then Vegas played uh, a heavy game against us and found a way to win a one goal game against us. You know, even though that both these games are great hockey games, by the way. But if you want to be a team that's built for playoffs, you want to win one goal hockey games. Well, we lost that one tough one in Vegas, even though I feel like we deserved a score at the end, didn't, but then another playoff type game against Edmonton and we found a way to lose that one too. So yeah, there's definitely some alarm bells. Yeah. Yeah. And I think ultimately for me, it comes down to just the psyche, right. Of, of where we're at as a, as a team against some of these divisional rivals, uh, so to speak, are we, you know, can we, we take care of business. Our top players take care of business against the San Jose sharks against the Anaheim ducks, you know, against some of these, teams that are down towards the bottom in the league, which you have to do. Um, your five-on-five game needs to even out. You know, maybe you get you beat them a little bit on the five-on-five game, and then your, your special teams wins against those other – those bottom-level teams. That's, I think, the separation, right? But when you get into these competitive games against the Edmontons, the, the Vegases, the Vancouvers now, you know, are you able to win that special teams battle? And it sure seemed like the special teams battle was – was tied last night. Kings did get a power play goal with that beautiful pass from Kempe to Fiala, which if you didn't see, Josh was calling that game, calling that goal live. He had the camera on. He's videoing. He's commentating. He's announcing that goal. He's celebrating on that goal. That was absolutely sick. If you haven't seen, go on, check that on Instagram. Um, and then he also was, uh, he also called the McDavid goal, which was a beautiful, beautiful goal right in front of us. But uh, with all with all that said, um, you know <clears throat> the the their players, their better players, I thought were better than our players once that uh, once they got that power play goal. I don't think the Kings showed much um, outside of that. No, right. I would agree with a hundred percent with that assessment. It's thought the Kings were very good in the first period, and then. You know, I, there was a there was a lurking notion in the game. This is so interesting. How do you can kind of you can kind of track these things throughout the game? But there was a lurking notion that when the Edmonton had virtually no shots, I'm kind of thinking to myself, you know what's going to happen? Their first shot is going to come on the power play. It's going to end up in the back of the net, and they're going to get going. Kind of exactly what happened. It wasn't their first shot or anything like that, but it was, I don't know, whatever it was. It was a low number. McDavid, I mean, pulls a rabbit out the hat and puts one up top over Talbot. And then they never looked back. I can't even remember a chance after that, really, for that the Kings had. There was maybe, maybe one like tip a chance, tip chance that we had that was stopped. And then I know Kopitar got Skinner out in the overtime and couldn't find a way there. But really, all in all, I can't remember a chance that we had after McDavid's goal. And I think that comes back to um, when we were watching some of the offensive zone movement in in that game, particularly. You know it. It's to the point where I'm just super frustrated with how the Kings move the puck in the offensive zone. 
a lot of times it's when, you know, get the puck in, you know, win the puck in the corner, bump the puck to the weak side to relieve pressure, win that race to that puck, bump the puck up to the point to relieve pressure and then go D to D to relieve pressure. So we're constantly relieving pressure and that's our offensive zone movement structure right now. And then the def- the defenseman on that weak side, then he's looking for a cross seam. He's looking for a point shot. He's looking for somebody to get open. But I think most teams know that that's our bread and butter. Hey, look, they're going to bump it, release pressure, release pressure, but stick with your guy because all they're looking to try to do is find a backdoor cross seam play. And what I'd like to see is more of that high cycle, more of that, that movement, high cycle, low cycle, crisscrossing movement instead of standard cycle, standard cycle. Now, I think I, I mentioned this before, and if the Kings organization doesn't know this, go tap on Teddy Belial. He's one of your, he's one of your scouts. That guy put together one of the best PowerPoint presentations I've ever seen on all the different types of offensive zone movement structures. Obviously, you've got the U.S., you've got Canada, you've got Sweden, you've got Finland, you've got Russia. All these countries bring unique styles of offensive zone movement. And what we've seen some of the best teams do is combine those things with constantly crisscrossing, constantly flowing, so that defenders aren't able to structure and stabilize so you can get guys in misdirection and there is no misdirection in the la kings offensive zone structure and i'm just i'm you know i'm kind of venting right now which we talked about venting is not good but i'm also hoping that we can have some change here we have great talented players that can learn but is our staff able to change with the change of the games or are we just going to consistently cycle 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 get the puck up to the point go d to d look for a cross seam it's getting boring if we're not doing something on the rush. Yeah. You know what? Here, potential life lesson. It was, this is one of those things where I knew it because I was watching it or I didn't know it. I was watching it. I, I recognized it and it took somebody else to point it out to me. Like, Hey, this is what's happening. Oh yeah. That's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what's going on. Sometimes I need somebody to point something out to me, but like, Oh, you know what? That is what's going on. I need to rectify that. Anyhow, I, it was such a great point because I, I went, yeah, that's exactly what's going on when we enter the zone. Whether we get the entry, we gain the line. Okay, so some guy enters, he curls, we relieve pressure up top, it goes D to D. And again, as you said, we're looking for a cross seam or it's hold, hold, there's nothing there. And it's a shot and it's an easy chest save, right? That's a, it seems to be our entire offense. And it's so interesting because when you talk about all the different offensive zone systems and the fluidity that they could possibly bring, it's like we have the personnel to do these things. And for whatever reason, we just don't do them. So it's kind of like, if we're going back to the Edmonton game, without a Fiala nip and a Kempe nip, we don't score at all. We don't score any goal. It took, it took magic, two moments of magic for us to score goals. And if we don't have those, we get shut out. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. So, I mean, in that game, our top players – our top players produced, right? Fiala, Kempe, they put up goals and Edmonton's top players, Dreisaitl and McDavid, they both scored. So that was kind of an even contest. The depth, you know, the depth didn't contribute from either team with scoring, which I think is one of the things that the Kings have been good at this year through the, the first, you know, first part of the calendar year as their depth contributions have led them to be one of the higher scoring teams. But are you nervous that if the Kings can't, score a high volume that they're unable to you know what i mean 
to hold on to these or win these games? Well, I think, again, what we saw is, is like there was a, a sense of, as you said, PTSD. There was a sense of nervousness. I don't know. When we're playing against these competitors, our direct competitors, there's a certain amount of trepidation to our offensive game. Or at least, there's at least, I think, if this is just my opinion here, there's a trepidation as far as it as it comes to our coaching. And I think the way that we should approach these games is, because yeah, we score a high volume, but not against our, like, our direct competitors. And I think it's because we're not, pushing forward or continuing to push forward or putting our foot on the gas pedal. And let's go, go, go. Let's get more waves. Let's get more offense. Let's be more fluid. It's uh, like, you can see it, especially in the corner. This, you can definitely see this where when the word defending, and it's, the only reason I bring this up, because I think it's a representation of our mentality in the game. We close in, we get real wrapped in tight when the others are in our offensive zone. And I just think that that's, indicative of our mentality i think we really get real small you know i think we get small-minded when we play uh these kind of playoff type games that's a really good point man i mean it just like the butthole puckers up in a way you know what i mean and it's (laughs) that's not how you want to be playing against these guys i don't see i don't see that in some of the guys like i don't know maybe just i'm a big deno fan the way that guy plays the game i mean he it seems like the larger the stage the the more he performs, you know, he's such a competitor. He's such a hockey player. What a great signing that was by Blake in the off season two, two years ago. Holy smokes. That was a great signing. You know, the other thing we talked about was with that, with that offensive zone structure, if it does stay current, right. If we do, can I keep doing the same thing and we're not really working on high cycling or integrating our defense into the full offensive zone movement pattern. Um, and we do, and we are requiring our defensemen to be dynamic and to create plays from that point. Are we missing something in our top six that can do that? Or is there an asset that we have in our system who does have dynamic ability and could add to our current structure? Okay. So we're getting there. We're getting to the, we're getting to the Spence Clark thing. Uh, <laughs> but we have Dowdy there, but okay. So, uh, is the question is okay? So is Drew Doughty a dynamic player at this stage? A dynamic player. So I guess let me throw this one to you, Mark. How do you de- define a dynamic player? I think anything um, that kind of can go off the grid and go right. out of off the rails, so to speak, within the confines of X's and O's and lines and spots where you're supposed to be. And can kind of change the change the the rails that you're on, right? Like if you're on a train track, right? Somebody who's dynamic has the ability to jump tracks without completely combusting. Yeah, right. So, so a, a dynamic player is somebody where he has a script, but you trust him that hey, look, every now and then we got to go off script, and we trust you to be able to be that guy, right? That's something like a dynamic player. Kale McCarr, we can name them. Kale McCarr is one of them. McKinnon's one of them. McDavid's. These are all top end talents, obviously. But there's a. So is Drew Doughty that guy, an off script player right now at this stage of the career? I know that he was at one point in his career. I don't necessarily see that now. The next guy that comes up is Jordan Spence. Is he a dynamic offensive player? Is he a dynamic player out there? Is he uh, able to. Here's a European football analogy. Something that's something where it's dynamic, where you get the ball at the guy's feet, and this guy is able to change the game 
with one move and one kick of the ball, right? Is Jordan Spence that guy? Uh, no, I would say that Jordan Spence is probably his best asset is he is. Okay. I had a little spat on Twitter. We'll get to it. Uh, one of his best assets is his reliability, but with the ability to chip in offensively every now and then that doesn't scream dynamism to me. Okay. So is there somebody in our system who can be a dynamic player back there? Well, there's a guy down there who has 9,000 points in seven games and his name is Brent Clark. So, and I got this question. This question was posed to me on Twitter. Uh, shout out Andrew Knoll, NHL. Shout out. I mean, it's a fair enough question, but he said, oh, what the question is, what right now does Brent Clark bring to the team that Jordan Spence doesn't? Well, there's your answer. Brent Clark is a dynamic player right now. And he could be, if we're going to go up, you know, D to D across the blue, and we need some guy to get us going to be able to go off script, there's your guy. There's your guy right there. Yeah, there's your guy. Absolutely. If that's the way that our offensive zone movement pattern is structured, then, then I think you got it. Now, in terms of Drew Doughty, is he still one of the best defensemen in the NHL? Absolutely. We saw that earlier against Arizona. When he wants to turn it on, he can't. The cr the real truth of the matter is, is Drew Doughty is not any good in the offensive zone below the top of the circles. So when he jumps in the play, he doesn't. He can't create anything from down low. His his creation comes from the other. You know, if it's a 200 foot sheet of ice, he's basically creating in the other 175. You're right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it, he's he can absolutely chip in. His one timer's gotten better. His vision's gotten better, and he's really good in puck movement. And my gosh, he's so good in defending. And he chews up a ton of ice time. But when he jumps up into the play and he gets down low in the corners, he's really not a threat. He doesn't have the offensive ability, which is why he needs to be behind the play. He needs to be behind the play in the defensive side of things. Some forwards are really good, uh, and that's probably why they're forwards is because they're able to create offense down into you know below the hash marks, below the tops of the circles, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think there's definitely a player there, like you said, Dil uh, Brent Clark, who you know it would be nice to get a look there. Maybe it's a contract thing. Maybe it's a waiver thing. Uh oh, pause. So I think, you know, it would be nice to see or at least maybe have maybe we can look into this. Right. Obviously, we're the ones to dig up the old Pat Breeson connection with PLD. Let's let's dig. Let's dig in and find out what the current situation is from a cap space perspective. And why are we are we hindered to potentially uh, bring up a, a prospect like Brant Clark and let him get some looks at the NHL level at this point? Yeah, because it is interesting. I mean, uh, okay. I mean, they're around it, right? We're not in the room, as we say. We're not in the, and we're not in the office, so we don't really know, um, you know, why they haven't at least attempted to explore that option. But um, I don't know. You know, maybe they, maybe they just, you know, they see it differently than than we do at this stage. Maybe they, uh, you know, to their credit, they've probably watched more. Uh, well, not, not even probably, they have watched more Ontario Rain hockey games than we have. Um, and we also don't know the attitude of Brent Clark. So that, I mean, that's something to, uh, that's to be considered too. We don't know. We don't know if he's, uh, if it's a, uh, Hey, stay down there until you fix your attitude deal. I mean, that's, that's plausible. Um, but maybe they just don't think he, maybe he doesn't have the strength yet. They wanted to build up his strength before he comes up here. Um, my fear with that though, 
whatever with whatever reasoning they can come up with to keep him down there is well great we, we saw what happened to Turcotte we see what happened with Bjornfort Tobias is back now obviously but we saw what happened to Turcotte some guy hits him and now he's out again well fuck what a waste of time that was he just got hit by some guy not to chirp anybody i mean they're playing pro hockey but he got hit by a guy that's probably not going to see a lick of ice in the show and this turcot is a is a first round draft pick so now god forbid that happens to the future of your decor because you wanted him for whatever reason to stay down there well it was a cap thing well now he's hurt <laughs> now you don't wish that i mean that's you know here we go so we did get some news on the way down there. Victor Arvidsson, uh, surgery went well, back surgery went well. Um, out, outlook for him, it, it appears that he may be back uh, as soon as February. Um, and I would anticipate if, if he can fully recover and get back into the Kings light up end of February, early March, he could be prepared and ready to go for the playoffs, which could be a great addition. Uh, if that does happen, um, and things were to kind of stay in its current state, where do you think where do you think they would slot him in? I think that for me, the choice is obvious. I think he just goes right back into where he was with Dano and Mora. That the thing about Arbison, which is so funny, is everybody knows he's a bit of a band-aid, but uh it, it doesn't seem like it's ever hampered his ability to play hockey when he ever whenever he makes his return. It's kind of shocking almost. You would think that he would he would take a guy a little longer coming back from injury to just reach peak form and it doesn't seem like that happens with Arbison. so that's an encouraging sign for us when he comes back i would put him right there with dan owen morgan okay so now what now you got to figure out what to do with fiala not but oh i'll throw it to you though what do you think where would you slot Arbison? yeah i think i i love that i love that that line to know more Arvidsson. They have been so good and proven that they have been they could be so good. And I think then you could bump Fiala to the line with uh Dubois. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden your third line just got a whole lot more potent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that was that was the exciting thing about bringing Dubois in was that you know whatever line it was, second, third line, whatever, is like we're gonna go Kopitar, Kempi, Byfield, and then we're going to roll more Dano and Arbison, and then you have to deal with Dubois and Fiala. That's a lot to deal with. So, but I guess they, they, they would say that they tried that tandem with Dubois and Fiala. I would say with two guys like that, uh, you you got to continue with it until they figure it out because it's. I don't think it's worth like five games. Oh, this isn't working. They have, they had they need more time within that. You know, so. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you're going to give up a little bit, but you should be able to get a lot more. You should be able to get a lot more. And I think the it comes down to, in my mind, is uh, there's a lack of trust from McClellan to Fiala, which is why he put him on that line with Deneau and more because he trusts those guys a lot. Mm hmm. And he didn't trust Byfield, and so he put Byfield with Kopitar and Kempe because he trusts Kopitar and Kempe a lot. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? So it's his trust that is lacking in those guys. And how do you, how do you develop that, right? Other than letting it, putting the work into it. You know what I mean? Like I'm gonna trust you because I know you're gonna at least continually try to do the right things. And are you always gonna be perfect? No. Um. But, you know, trust definitely takes time to build. You know, you certainly 
you certainly have to put people in the right situations to develop it, but you also can't, you also can't hold them back. You know what I mean? From, from experiencing those things or putting them in situations where they've got to earn it. You know what I mean? Over and over and over again. Are you putting Fiala in a situation to earn trust when you're just, you know, protecting him by having him play with Dano and more, you know what I mean? You're not requiring him to do that. Hey, we're going to put you with our two best, you know, most sound forwards. Yeah, right. I'm going to put this, put Fiala with my two most trustworthy players. And then now I don't have to worry about, uh, I don't have to have that. I don't have to worry about Kevin Fiala, but now you're not, now he's not in that position to actually gain your trust. So you're not worried about that either. Is that not the goal? If you don't trust somebody, don't you want to trust them? So how do you do that? I mean, you got to put them in an untrustworthy situations probably to see if they can see how uh, they react. Get, yeah, yeah. Gain your trust. So an untrustworthy situation is <laughs> playing with the uh, PLD and whoever else you want to put in that wing. Yeah. And I would think that would be a pretty good line when they had, I thought it was a good line when they had it going early in the season. Um, Actually, you know what? To Dubois credit, I thought he put, uh, I thought he set up Fiala a couple times on a platter and he just didn't finish. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Hey, ending this uh, this episode off, obviously, it's been a lot of fun. We talked about the the process and figuring out why we're in the ditch, right? Sometimes rather than worrying about just getting out of the ditch, you got to get out of the ditch, but you got to figure out how you got there. Um, how we got here in large part, we didn't grow up in a winter climate. We grew up in California. We grew up Kings fans. We grew up playing roller hockey, not pond hockey, but we have had a chance to, you know, travel the country and and I would say that heading into the Winter Classic as a celebration of hockey, seeing that in the Pacific Northwest where we both spent time, I think it's super exciting for me. And just to kind of go into uh, finally having a team in Washington State, there's only 13 players that have played from the state of Washington in the National Hockey League. Um, Kyler Yamamoto from Spokane, where I'm at, is playing in that game. Um Another franchise who, you know, my aunt was a part of helping to raise season tickets for the Vegas Knights. So they're uh, a new market as well. It's great to see that here we are in 2023, heading to 2024. The game of hockey is still growing. It's still getting bigger. It's still going to impact more lives in a positive way. And we want to continue to see that contribution. Um, if you do have a chance to get out, get, get people out on the ice, uh, there's nothing better. There's nothing better than going for a skate outdoors. Um, whether it's a roller rollerblading on the strand at the beach or it's uh, skating on a pond, um, it, it truly is a great way to spend some time with people that you care about. I'm excited for this game, even though the Kings aren't playing playing in it. Um, any sentiments from you as we close out today's episode? Uh, I mean, just as far as the Winter Classic game, oh, this is, I hate to do this, but I'm going to throw a, a slight little negative thing in there. It's great live. It's not great on TV. I hope they find a way to, uh, at least in my opinion anyway, I hope they find a way to make it uh, more watchable on television for because for whatever reason, it doesn't translate. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I loved, um, I spent some time up there in the Northwest as a, as a Portland guy myself. I'm supposed to hate Seattle. Uh I kind of, I don't, <laughs> I don't hate the Kraken. Um, I loved it up there, man. I loved it up there. But I, you know, I, I spent time up there about 15, 14, 13 years ago. Um, I will say it's different, but still it's like one of the most beautiful places I think you could visit in all of the United States. Uh, yep. I'm happy there's a team up there. Anybody who's from California, don't, don't worry about moving up there. Stay in California. <laughs> it's too cold. It's too cold. <laughs> 
don't worry about it. I'm just kidding. Hey, super grateful for you, Josh. Great to hop on here. Close out 2023. We're super excited for 2024 and where we continue to grow. And, and there's a lot of hope for a bright future. If you want to, if you like what we're doing here, please share, subscribe, like, um, help to get the word out as the game grows, as we grow, there's going to be more and more opportunities to bring Kings fans into the corner with us, whether it's on the podcast, social media, or actually in the corner live, Josh, where can people find us? Twitter.com slash LA Kings corner, uh, twitch.tv slash LA Kings corner, Instagram.com slash LA Kings corner, uh, rumble.com slash LA Kings corner. That's based. If you want to email the show, please email the show. Actually, if you have a question or comments, LA Kings corner at gmail.com. And lastly, if you like what we're doing here, again, all these are all these links are all avenues that you can get uh, questions, comments read on the air, or even come on the air if you want. Uh, lastly, the last link is buymeacoffee.com slash LAK corner. That's buymeacoffee.com slash LAK corner. Appreciate y'all. Closing out 2024. Go Kings, go. We're on our way to a Stanley Cup in 2024. Let's go.